0: Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the ministry of your word in the lives of those who are part of this church and have come through these doors from time to time. Thank you for the legacy of that, Father. It's a blessing to us because it's once again proof in our own way or to our own eyes that you are working here, that you are ever present and living in the hearts of men and women. And we know that, Father, that in all the days past, as your word has been preached, it has been soaking in into the ground of the hearts of those who hear it and on an appointed day. It becomes the fuel to that engine that you give us through the Spirit to go out and do work in your name. So, this day is yet one more of those opportunities, Father. So, let's help us to lay more of that groundwork in, in the hearts of people through the preaching of the Word and through a patient and diligent listening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know how when you first meet someone, you, you typically rely on first impressions to size them up, you know, to get a good sense of who they are, because really that's all you have when you first meet someone. is first impressions, friend or foe. Can you trust them or not? Do you really even have an interest in them or not? That's what first impressions give us. Now, that first impression can be very helpful because, as I said, sometimes it's all we have, but it can also lead to trouble. There's a young man once who, who climbed his way up a corporate ladder in this big company, and he did it rather quickly until one day... As still a rather young man, he found himself promoted to vice president of a large division in this corporation. And it involved a move. He had to go away from where he had been working to a new place, to a new state, to take over a new office. And as he arrived there on the very first day to assume this new position in in this big corporate office, he was nervous. He was young. He knew he was new. He wanted to make that first good impression to the people that now reported to him, to the staff and the employees. As that day began, he settled into that big office chair you get, you know, the the leather chair that's behind the big desk in the big office. And he sits there for a moment, just in the silence of that opening moment in that room, just congratulating himself. I made it to the top. At that point, the secretary who is assigned to him opened the door, poked her head in and said, you have your very first visitor waiting outside here to see you. Now, at that moment, the young man does a quick look, a glance around his desk and he realizes, you know, there's nothing on my desk, there's no papers, there's no open books, even the computer is still turned off. It's basically an empty office. And he wants that first person who comes in, perceives him as someone of importance, as someone who is a busy man with a lot of big things and heavy decisions to make and a lot of activity and and so on, that the nonstop responsibilities of this job are just nearly overwhelming. But as he looks around the room, he realizes that's not the perception they're going to have as they step into this nearly empty office. So as the visitor begins to walk through, the man quickly grabs the phone that's sitting on his desk and picks it up and just starts to engage in the middle of a fake conversation with someone about something important and some heated conversation about weighty matters and so on. Now, as the visitor walks in and stands in front of the desk, he just waits patiently, letting this conversation happen. Wondering when it will end. And eventually the guy hangs up the phone. Goodbye, goodbye, hangs up the phone. And then he turns to his visitor and he says, as you can see, I'm very busy here this morning. So would you please quickly tell me why have you come to see me this morning? And the man without any emotion, says, I'm here to connect your phone. Now that repair man, that phone repairman gained a first impression of that young executive, though it wasn't the one he wanted, I'm sure. And sometimes our first impressions lie to us in that way. Sometimes the nature of how they're formed lead us down the wrong trail, for better or for worse. And that's especially true when the person you're interacting with is pretending to be someone they're not, because then they have the upper hand. They're changing your first impression and doing so intentionally for false motives. Well, that's the situation Jacob finds himself in. This morning, it's Jacob here now who is going to make the mistake of relying on a first impression, a first impression of Laban, his uncle, but one that is being manipulated by a man who does not have honest intentions. We start in chapter 29, verse 14, where we left off last time. Actually, we think we read 14 last week, but it's a good transition. So we'll start there again today and forward from there. So let's start in chapter 29, 14. Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he, meaning Jacob, stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my relative, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah's eyes were weak but Rachel was beautiful of form and face now Jacob loved Rachel so he said i will serve you 7 years for your younger daughter Rachel Laban said it is better that i give her to you than to give her to another man stay with me so Jacob served 7 years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her So Jacob lived and worked with Laban for about a month after he arrived. And while we don't see it yet, we will see soon enough that Laban is very impressed with Jacob and with his skill as a shepherd. And as a result, Laban opens this conversation after 30 days. And it's a conversation about wages, about paying Jacob for the work that he's doing. He says, is it right for Jacob, who is of flesh and blood, to work for nothing to work for free that's that's what Laban asks his message is pretty simple his message is i should care for you as a relative at least as much if not more than i care for all my hired men and i pay them so why wouldn't i pay you now that sounds like a generous offer and in some ways it is but in the rules of the day it's actually not and that's where knowing a little of the culture helps us in this case because even if today we would expect something like that, in that day that was not the expectation. In fact, the culture of the day would have done it exactly the opposite of what Laban is suggesting. Remember, a man paid hired workers, not his sons, not his relatives. Remember the parable of the prodigal son, for example, in Luke 15? Remember the son? He takes his inheritance. He leaves the father's house, gets himself in a world of trouble, and at the low point of his life, he has this, this moment of recognition where he says to himself, I could at least go back under the circumstances and appeal to my father and ask him to hire me as a hired son. And I'd have a better life than I have now. Remember, the son says this to himself as he's rehearsing the speech that he's going to give to his father when he finally gets home. He says this in Luke fifteen eighteen: I will get up, go to my father and will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am Listen, I am no longer worthy to be called your son, so make me one of your hired men. You see, the son had a higher station in the family than a hired man did, than a paid man. He said he wasn't worthy to be a son, so therefore I might qualify as a hired man. In other words, to be paid wages for work was not a privilege. It's a sign of bondage. It's a sign of bondage in that day. In fact, the word servant is sometimes slave depending on the translation. Remember another example to prove my point further? Remember Paul's analogy in Galatians when he compares coming to faith in Christ to the experience of a child becoming an heir in the family. And Paul says this in Galatians one. I say to you, as long as the heir is but a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, even though he is an owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So in Jacob's day, in the culture, sons were not paid. Servants or slaves were paid. And yes, slaves often were paid because the sense of what slavery means is different then. than it came to be known in our country many years later. So in this case the sons never would have had an expectation of payment because their payment was the inheritance. When they worked for the father, they effectively were working to build up their own inheritance. And in the proper day, a date set by the father, Scripture says, they came to receive all of that that they had coming to them. So in the meantime, there was no expectation of being paid. That would have been lowering their station to move into a place where they were being paid for the work. Jacob is... Not a son of Laban. He's a nephew and there is a difference. But because he's not a son, he has nothing binding him to Laban. Right? There's no benefit in working for Laban in the long term because he's not building up his own inheritance. He's building up an inheritance for Laban's family. That's not something he plans to do for very long. And secondly, he's not earning any money in the role that he has because in that culture, family didn't get paid. So he's only there really as a visitor for as long as he wants to be. At any time, Jacob could decide, I'm tired of this. I'm going to go home and work toward my own inheritance in my father's house. Now, Laban understood this kid is good. He's good at shepherding. He's helping my business, but there's nothing to hold him here. How do I keep him? How do I make him want to stay? Look at what he does here. He makes it sound like a good thing that Jacob would become a slave, a servant, basically a paid hired hand. But he twists it in such a way that he says, well, certainly you're more valuable to me than these other men and I pay them. So I must be able to pay you. Isn't that a good deal for you? That's interesting. Little twist on the truth, isn't it? Making the lie, the truth. Now, that's a trick worthy of Jacob himself. Wouldn't you agree? That's like taking a page right out of Jacob's playbook. It's similar in some respects to the way Jacob treated Esau all these years ago. You remember that now, right? Laban's offer here to Jacob is completely legitimate and fair. It's not like he's setting up a false deal. He's saying, would you like to be paid? There's nothing wrong with that offer. Similar to the way that Jacob went to his brother Esau and said, would you like to sell your birthright? It's completely legitimate. It's a fair offer. There's nothing tricky about what he said. But it's designed to take advantage of another person's weakness. Now, in Laban's case, what's the weakness he's trying to take advantage of in Jacob? Well, it's the oldest weakness in the book. A man's desire for a woman. They always get us with that one, don't they? And it's the truth. Laban is no dummy and Laban has made very careful observation. And a month of time has been enough for him to discern, you like my daughter, don't you? I'm going to make clear to you that there's a way you can get her, but that way is going to come through time and effort. Now, Laban actually has two daughters, we're told. There's not just one in this family. There's two. There's Leah, the oldest, and then Rachel, the one that Jacob has interest in. Now, the story of these two women in the book of Genesis, it's straight out of a Disney script, isn't it? Listen, you've got Rachel, who's beautiful in form and face. Now, form here is a, a way of saying her figure, her body. And face refers to, to well the face, the, the, the way she looks. So you have beautiful face, good-looking body. Rachel's name even conveys a little of what she looks like. It's you, lamb, a young female lamb, innocent, pure, white, beautiful, delicate. Now, Leah, on the other hand, how do I put this delicately? Well, her name means cow, which tells you, I think, everything we need to know about Leah. And I'm not making that up. Look, it's in the book. It means cow. Furthermore, we're told her eyesight is weak. Now, what that means is she literally couldn't see well. She had poor eyesight. Now, why is that relevant? How does that tell you anything? Well, it's interesting if you think about it for a minute. In that day, poor eyesight was a real problem because she didn't have corrective lenses. If you're really nearsighted, that means you're going to be prone to being clumsy, to falling over things, to running into things, who's just not able to to do much. And in fact, it's a real impediment to being useful, because if you can't see well, you can't do a lot of important things. And women were hard workers in the family. So for a man, it lowers her value substantially. It's a severe physical impediment that when you combine it with her name, cow, this isn't going to be a good deal for somebody when the time comes to marry off. Now, as the father, Laban has the cultural responsibility to marry these women off, to get his daughter's husbands. Otherwise, he stuck with them for life. Because in this day and age, women lived in the house of their father until such time as they moved into the house of their husband. That was the culture. And it's not a bad thing even today for those who do this. I think that's a a very biblically sound process, where the woman is under headship in the home from the father until it transfers to the husband. Furthermore, as you know, marriages were arranged, which meant that the prospective husband had to negotiate with the bride's father, usually to gain that daughter. And that's remember precisely what Laban did when Laban helped negotiate the price of the bride for Rebecca, his sister, to go marry Isaac. So that process we've already seen back in chapter 24. So here's Laban. He's a man who knows he has to marry off both of these daughters and he's going to receive a price for each. He's going to receive a payment for each of these daughters. Finding a suitable husband for Rachel is not going to be hard. Some guy is going to come along and want her. So he's not worried about Rachel, but finding a good suitor for the cow, I mean for Leah, is going to be nearly impossible given the fact that she's also weak of eyesight. No man is going to be willing to pay for an unattractive woman who's visually impaired. So what Laban is looking at here is the prospect of having this woman in his house forever. And it's not just the burden of that. There's a certain dishonor associated with that. Her dishonor and then by extension, the family's dishonor. So turning to Jacob for a moment, we all know he's got this interest in Rachel. He's liked her from the moment he saw her back at the well. He's come to Laban's house, as you know, with nothing, He has no possessions. He didn't bring any of his own inheritance with him. He just walked away from everything temporarily. So how is he going to negotiate for the hand of Rachel? That's been on his mind. I mean, we don't see it in the text, but we know the culture well enough to understand that in that month that's gone by, he's been thinking to himself, that's the girl for me, but I don't stand a prayer of taking her because I don't have anything to offer the father, Laban in this case. Now, Laban, going back to him for a moment, we've already said he's no dummy. He's seen this dynamic. And he understands Jacob's problem. He understands Jacob has no money. And that's precisely why he made this offer. You see, there's no reason for Jacob to take wages. He's rich back at home. And there's no reason for him to assume a lower station in this man's household as a paid hired hand versus simply being the nephew, except that he needs the money. He needs the money for Rachel. And so Laban's stealing a page right out of Jacob's own playbook. Hit them when they're weak. Take advantage of them when they're not thinking. Put something in front of them they can't refuse. That's what he did with Esau. When he bought the birthright from Esau, he knew a couple of things that were to his advantage. He knew Esau couldn't care less about the birthright. He knew Esau was ruled by his flesh and he was prone to making rash decisions, especially when he's hungry. And so he positioned it that way. He says, would you like to sell that birthright reading between the lines of the text? I also believe that he suspected that Esau did not appreciate that birthright and inheritance always go hand in hand. So while he despised the birthright, he wanted the inheritance. He didn't think through it. He sold one, assuming he'd still keep the other only to find out later he wouldn't. So Jacob made Esau an offer which was legitimate. But it was built on deception and scheming and a knowledge of what would be the person's weakness. And so now Jacob falls for Laban's trap in a very much the same way that Esau did. He says, I'll work seven years for your daughter, Rachel. Now, that's a huge offer. That's a very generous offer. He's offering basically 84 shekels by the standard of what work was worth. In that day, 84 shekels for Rachel's hand. I want you to consider by comparison in later in Genesis when Joseph is sold into slavery. If you know the rest of the book of Genesis and you remember that story, what was the price that the sons, the brothers of Joseph earned when they sold him to the traders headed toward Egypt? Twenty shekels, Twenty. One fourth of the price and a male slave had at least as much or not more value than the average wife. Take it for what it's worth. And so at the point where you see Rachel being bought for 84 shekels, that was Jacob's intent to make an offer so big Laban couldn't refuse because he didn't want to risk losing that woman. If someone were to come up to you unsolicited and offer to buy your house at four times the going rate, would you turn that down? Even if you weren't in the market to sell your home, you'd be hard pressed not to, right? That's the situation you see here. Jacob offered something Laban couldn't refuse, but of course Laban was going to accept it. We're told in verse 20, this offer reflected Jacob's great love for Rachel. I like to think that whenever this part of the story is being retold in Jewish homes throughout the centuries, you get to this point where the story says it felt like but a few days because of his love for her. At that point, I have to imagine the room just always broke out with, oh. It's so romantic. You know what? It turns out, like in most times, the romantic here is being foolish. Look at verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife for my time is complete that I may go into her. Laban gathered all the men of the place and made a feast. Now in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to him. And Jacob went into her. Laban also gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a maid. So it came about in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served with you? Why then have you deceived me? Now, after seven years, Jacob's done his duty and he's earned that 84 shekels and he's ready to claim his bride. And so Laban does the right thing. At least at first, he sets up a wedding feast, a seven-day festival, which was common, to celebrate this marriage. So the way this worked, during that seven days, the woman was always veiled entirely. She was always in a long flowing gown or, or garb that would completely cover her body, her form. And her head was always completely veiled. That's part of the tradition. And we still follow that, as you know, in some ways, sometimes with a woman wearing a veil in the, in the day of her wedding. So that's a, a throwback to what was customary in the East. And so for that whole week, the husband never set eyes on the woman he was about to marry. And then as the wedding ceremony itself reached the wedding night, the bride is taken and placed by herself in a tent that's set up for this event, for this wedding night uh, moment. And then the new husband continues to celebrate a little longer with the men that he is with in the family. These would be brothers of the bride, his own cohorts So just generally the men, a kind of bachelor party of sorts. And so finally, he is ushered by his friends to the tent. And this could happen a variety of ways, but generally it happens this way. And then in some cultures, he's literally thrown into the tent. They throw open the, the tent and they push him and everybody's, yeah, yeah, celebrating. You know how that would, that would go, right? They're all happy for him. Now, this is happening at night, and there's no electric lamps. In fact, you don't want any light in this tent. So they throw him in the tent, close the flaps, and everybody walks away, and they leave the bride and the groom alone. Now, inside, you're thrown in, dark place. You're under the influence of wine. You probably don't have all your senses about you. And this is your first personal encounter with your new bride. She's been veiled up to this moment. In fact, traditionally, she'd leave the veil on. The husband is the only one with the right to move the veil over her face. But at the point he does it, he's in the dark. So he doesn't see anything. And so Laban is successful in pulling off this deception that he's so famous for in Scripture. He gives Jacob the wrong bride, the wrong woman. And Jacob is oblivious because of the circumstances, because of the environment. He also, we're told, gives his daughter a bridesmaid, which is essentially her servant. And that's customary. We'll talk more about that bridesmaid later. She plays a bigger role in the story of Jacob, which is why she's mentioned here at all. Now, what do we make of this deception? You and I might be thinking, well, time out. This doesn't count. Do over. I don't care who was in the tent. That's not who I agreed to marry. Somebody (laughs) go get Rachel. That's what we're thinking. All right, well, that's not the way the law works. Because in this day, a wedding was a binding agreement, as it is actually in our day, too. But in this day, they observed it. It's a binding legal agreement. And even though Jacob expected to marry a different woman, when he consummates a marriage, he's officially married to that woman. Ain't no going back. And Laban knew that. I mean, that's the whole point, right? To push Jacob into a position where he could not escape. There's no prospect to end this relationship. What was done is done. So the schemer, the deceiver as some call him, Jacob, is now the recipient of a scheme and a deception. He's married Leah. Now let's ask an important question at this moment, one that we have to ask if we're really going to get the sense of what the text is teaching us. That question is, where was God during these events? How does his will and purpose find itself here? Where do we see it reflected in the events? We know without any question that God had the power to stop Laban's deception if he had chosen to do so. Do we not? I mean, God is not powerless over this. He could have made it stop. He could have interrupted it somehow. So that forces us to conclude, self-evidently, God permitted this to happen. But then that just moves the question forward one step. Why? Why did God permit it to happen? We have to remember something else. God promised Jacob when he left the land that he would keep him and bless him in everything that he did, everywhere he went, and bring him back safely. That's a promise God made. It hadn't changed. God hasn't revoked that promise So that leads us now to conclude that this horrible deception. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine working seven years? Every day you wake up, you see Rachel. All the days you walk fields shepherding the sheep, you're thinking about Rachel. Every time you bump into her, you say, honey, it's only three and a half more years. It's only two more years. Can you imagine at the end of all that and you don't have the woman you thought you were going to have? It's terrible. But as bad as that seems, with what we know about God and his promises, we have to conclude God has a great purpose in this. There is a good purpose somehow to be found in the events of this story. Otherwise, everything we know about God is completely void. The Bible tells us this time and time again, that God brings discipline upon his children. And I think anyone who's studied that can rationally agree with that and accept the notion of discipline. We understand how discipline works, and we can accept that God is our Father will bring discipline. The problem is, when he actually does it, we're taken by surprise. Or when we see him doing it, we question how he could let something like that happen. Hebrews does the best job of anywhere that I know of in Scripture of really teaching on this principle. And there are only a few verses are required to get the sense out of Hebrews 12. The writer telling us about God and his nature to discipline, which is what I think we're seeing going on here in Jacob's life. He says this, Verse 3, he says, For consider him, meaning Christ, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and yet you've forgotten the exhortation, which is addressed to you as sons, which is, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges. That's a word for whipping. He scourges every son, not just the bad ones. He scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. What a great reminder that discipline has a role in the bringing up of every child and God no different for us. And I know we understand, broadly speaking, the principle of discipline, the value of being disciplined, the way it causes us to correct our bad behaviors. You don't need to hear me teach on that. I think we all understand that instinctively. But you've got to take a moment here to consider what the Bible says. It means that we are disciplined. Hebrews says in verse 8, it means we are God's children. It's proof that you've been saved, that you have a God who will reach into your life and scourge and bring discipline. And in fact, the writer goes the step further and he says, you know what, if you could possibly live a life in which you never experience the scourging, the discipline of the Lord in your life, you are seeing evidence you are not a child of God because he disciplines every child he receives. What that teaches us in a nutshell is unbelievers do not receive God's discipline. Not in this life. They receive the natural consequences of their sin, as do we. But it stops there. And all that God has to say about their sin awaits until their day of judgment and wrath. We, on the other hand, we are told we receive not only those consequences, which are natural to everybody, but we also receive his discipline, which is an extra measure of scourging, something God brings in addition to make a point, to bring us to holiness ultimately. And on the day of our judgment, we don't receive that wrath. We receive mercy. So look at what Jacob is experiencing here and see if I'm not right. See if this doesn't qualify as discipline. Jacob is experiencing God's discipline for his continuing sin of relying on himself instead of relying on God. For his tendency to scheme and exploit other people to get what he wants rather than entrusting God. That's been Jacob's heel, his Achilles heel. That's been his his weakness, right? And it's that very thing God turns on its head and uses to discipline. That's God's favorite way to discipline. Jacob now has received the full measure, the full equivalent of what he himself has been guilty of in times past. And that's God's pattern in Scripture. I love to see this every time I see it because it reminds me that God is smart enough to figure out ways that are creative in the form our discipline takes. I'll bet if you think a little bit about it in your own life, the things that you and I are most prone to, to being weak in, to being sinful in, are some of the things God has used and turned on its head and brought against us. There's a great example of that out of the nation of Israel's history a little later in the story of Israel when they're in the desert after they've left Egypt and they're complaining to God because they like meat and he hasn't been bringing them any meat, but they used to get a little bit in Egypt, so now they're starting to think maybe it wasn't so bad to be a slave in Egypt. So their sin was grumbling against God's provision how does God bring that sin back upon them? How does he discipline those children? Numbers eleven sixteen, The Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there and I will take of the spirit who's upon you and will put him upon them and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you will not bear it alone. And say to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow and you shall eat meat. Oh, you who have wept in the ears of the Lord saying, oh, that someone would give us meat to eat for we were well off in Egypt. Well, therefore, the Lord will give you meat and you shall eat. You shall eat not one day, not two days, not five days, not 10 days, nor 20 days, but a whole month till it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we leave Egypt? There's a dad who knows how to discipline. Right. You think you want me. You think I don't take good care of you. Fine. You're going to get me. You're going to get me till it's coming out of your nose. You can almost hear dad saying that now, can't you? That's not vindictiveness. That's not God just being petty and and throwing something in your face. That's God saying, let me show you yourself. Let me get a mirror up here and show you your sin and give you a reason to regret it. And God has given Jacob a mirror in the form of a wife, Leah. Now, let me tell you, as we end today, that's not something you can change, right? This isn't a discipline measure that suddenly when the discipline is done and it's had its intended effect, that now we can just sort of clean up the mess and forget everything that's happened. No, no, he's got a wife for life. And this is, in my opinion, God's appointed wife for Jacob. Now, it's not the one Jacob wanted, but it is the one God wanted. Leah to be his wife to be the mother of his children, to be the mother of Israel. And God did it in this way to teach Jacob a lesson about himself and about his power and his authority in Jacob's life and his ability to get what he wants despite Jacob's scheming. And he did it in such a way that Jacob could see his own scheming coming back upon his own head. I want you to look at the details for a minute and tell me this isn't God's handprint all over this moment. Remember when Jacob deceived his father to try to get something that he didn't have to deceive to get? What did he do? Well, he was able to deceive his father because he took advantage of a weakness his father had. What was the weakness his father had that allowed him to take advantage of it? His eyes, right? His blindness. What kind of wife is he going to get? A wife with poor eyesight. How was Laban able to perpetrate his deception upon Jacob? By making Jacob blind with the darkness of the tent. And Leah went along with this plan, right? Leah had to be in agreement. She knew what was happening. She got thrown into the marriage tent. And that's how Laban was able to perpetrate this as well. He had a partner, someone who was willing to pretend to be someone she actually wasn't. She had to pretend to be Rachel through that whole evening. Jacob, likewise, how did he get what he wanted against his father? Well, his parent asked him to pretend to be someone he wasn't. In the same way that Leah's father asked her. And Jacob was tricked into marrying the older daughter when he intended actually to marry the younger. Isaac was tricked into blessing the younger when he meant to bless the older. Jacob entered into a binding agreement with Leah that now, as he sees the truth, can't get out of. Isaac gave a blessing to a son that he couldn't revoke, even though later he realized he didn't want to do it. God took every detail in Jacob's deception used it, turned it, and slapped him upside the head with it. So that as he comes out of that tent in the morning, if he had been thinking with spiritual eyes and spiritual heart, he would have said to himself, Oh, God, I see you in this. I'm humbled. I'm embarrassed. I'm mad. But I realize I'm to blame. And you've got my attention. You win. I don't want to go round two. Is that what Jacob does? Ding, ding. He went back to his corner to freshen up because he wants round two. The right thing for Jacob to do at this point is honor his marriage, to acknowledge and recognize God's power, and to concede it, to get into it, to humble himself. Instead, he pushes forward in sin, seeking a second wife. This time again in Rachel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and come back next week to find out what happens. Heavenly Father, Don't let us be like Jacob in the way we see it unveiled on the pages of Scripture. Let us be like the man, Father, who we see in other places with faith and determination. With humble heart. But we know, Father, you didn't bring him there in a day. And in the time it took to get him there, Father, he stumbled and he rebelled. And his heart, Father, was distracted by things of the world. And I think, Father, you've recorded this story of him in this book that you wrote, so that we would understand we are more like these men than we may care to think. And we have, therefore, the opportunity by your grace to reach a pinnacle of faith that in some cases they did. So I pray, Father, for conviction, not only for what we know we do, but for those things, Father, that hold us back from doing the right thing, from trusting and relying on you. And I thank you, Father, for the encouragement to know that you don't give up when we do. You aren't. Swayed by our sin, but you discipline it. Let us make the most of the discipline.